to you. All right, I'm in a closet. Good evening to you. Anybody in here? There we go. Okay, there we go. Isaiah chapter 46 tonight. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, they'd love to get a Bible into your hands. On Sunday night, we try to cover a little more territory than the Sunday morning, and so you'll be at a fair loss uh, without a Bible. So just wave and get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands, and it'll be marked to our passage tonight for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. So tonight, so Sunday uh, evening. Well, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come this evening to Isaiah chapter 46. And in Isaiah chapter 46, uh, the Lord continues uh, a theme that he is carrying through this particular section of the book of Isaiah, and that is the folly of idolatry. And idolatry is simply the worship of any created thing. The universe is made up of two great uh, camps. There is the creator, and then there is the creation. And to worship the creation, however beautiful it is, however majestic, however awe-inspiring it might be, is always a folly because the creator is always greater than his creation. It is to end my worship at a place one step at least short of where it ought to go, and that is to who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, who is the creator of my life and the creator of the hunger in my heart for a relationship with him. And so the folly of idolatry, the worship of any created thing, the worship of anything other than the God of the Bible. And he turns his attention because the children of Israel were going to find themselves ultimately in Babylon, uh, surrounded by the idols of Babylon and the two principal uh, deities or idols that were worshipped uh, in Babylon were Bel and Nebo. And God declares, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden, these images, these idols were, to the weary beast. The animals, they stoop, they bow down together, transporting these uh, idols from one section of Babylon to another. They could not deliver the burden, but they themselves have gone into captivity. Bell represented in the Babylonian culture, the Babylonians, they worshipped all kinds of gods, too many to number, but these were the principal gods. Bell was the god that represented power. And Nebo was the god that represented wisdom. And every year they would have this ceremony associated with the worship of those two gods where they would be taken out of uh, their particular temple, loaded up on carts, these great idols, these great images, and then be carted across the city as the thronging multitudes would then, uh, you know, worship and adore the idols as they went by. Uh, God watched this year in and year out, and it seemed uh, inconceivable to him that a, a people would worship a God that was supposed to represent power, but who was incapable of transporting himself from one section of the city to the other. Uh, a God that was uh, demanding the worship of, the, of people for his power, and yet he depended upon the strength of oxen and cattle 
to transport him. It was also inconceivable to God that they would worship Nebo, this uh, great personification of wisdom, and how it is that this great God that represented wisdom required uh, two or three of the dumbest animals in creation, cattle and oxen, again, you know, to transport it from one end of the city to the other. And ultimately, the greatest, the great folly of worshiping Nebo and uh, Bel occurred when Babylon was overthrown by the Medo-Persians and they loaded them up on the cart to try and uh, allow these gods to flee the city from being taken captive by the Medes and by the Persians. And ultimately, as they're loaded on these carts and there's an attempt to flee the city with them on the carts, they were readily overtaken. The animals exhausted themselves in trying to outrun those that were coming to capture these particular gods. And the gods were not only unable to prevent their own capture, but unable to prevent the capture of the people. And God is basically looking at all of this, the uh, folly of worshiping any god that requires you to carry it. Uh, Any god that requires us, you know, to legitimize his or her existence. We need a god that can carry us, not a God that we need to carry. And of course, that's what religion is, is the worship, even people that take the worship of the true and the living God, the worship of the God of the Bible, and then they add all of their religion to it. Always they uh, turn it into something now where we feel compelled to support God, to carry God, to protect his reputation. And so uh, by the time man gets a hold of even something that's pure, Christianity, we can make it into something where God depends upon us. Sometimes you hear uh, the uh, evangelists on the television and they'll talk with how their great money-a-thons or whatever they call them, you know, going to raise the money and they'll tell you, God needs you like he's never needed you before. And really, and there is a sense in which it is true because God has never needed you before. So, um, and he doesn't need us now. But they put that kind of a guilt thing on it where we've got to support God. God doesn't need our support. He knows we need a God who can carry us. And so he goes on in verse 3, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth. God was responsible for the birth of the nation of Israel through the call of Abraham. He birthed them into a people. We've been born again into the kingdom of God, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, God says, I am he. And even to your gray hairs, he said, I will carry you. I'll carry you all through this life. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. The importance of having a God that will carry us through this life and right into the glory of heaven. And it is only the God of the Bible who is able to do that. You ever had God carry you? He carries us all day, every day. Whether we realize it or not, he does that. But then there's those special times where you look and you say, there is no way, there is no way I got through that without God carrying me. I know me. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. I know how hard that was. And that situation, my wife and I were just talking. I was talking with a friend at the back door even here this morning about 
an event that occurred within my life and I look back on it fondly some year and a half ago and it was a situation where I knew God carried me. There was no way I could get through what it was that I got through. And those seasons are very, very hard in our life because I like to believe that I'm living by faith when I'm really living on the basis of what I can see on the basis of my own strength and then to call that faith. And sometimes it isn't where we live all day, every day, year in and year out, not for most of us. But he brings us into those pockets of time where he really, really does carry us. And then having to get to that place where we recognize, God, I need you to carry me or I'm not going to get through this. It's a hard circumstance, but I'll tell you, once he carries you through it, You've got that between you and God, and nobody can ever take that away from you. And a witness, not only to his power, not only to his existence, but a witness to his love and his concern for us. Isn't it wonderful tonight to be able to worship the God of the Bible, the God who carries us? Not all gods are equal. No, no, no. There's only one who deserves to be called God, the one who has made us and who will bear us and carry us and deliver us. And then the Lord in verse 5, he goes on uh, to uh, speak about the fact that he is incomparable. He's in a class of his own in terms of what people choose to worship. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And this is the question that God poses to uh, the children uh, of Israel here. Uh, if you're going to create an idol to represent me, then what kind of an idol uh, would you make? He speaks then in contrast of the idols that the, uh, worship, that the world worships. He says, they lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes a god. Now, it's a terrible thing if you can make your god. Because again, the creator is always greater than the creation. Now I'm worshiping something that's less than me. It's illogical. And so here they gather all of the gold, all the silver. They, they entrust it to someone who has an expertise in, in dealing with these metals and then to make uh, this image of this God, <clears throat> excuse me, out of that metal. And they use these metals, gold and silver, in order to give their God a value that it wouldn't otherwise have without being made of these kind of precious metals and precious stones and so forth. And then having made the God, they then prostrate themselves before it. Yes, they worship, but then they're worshiping something that they have to bear on the shoulder. They've got to carry it from the shop to the temple or carry it from the shop and home. And then they set it in its place. And when they set it in its place, there it stands. I mean, it can't do anything. You can't do a Sammy Davis for us or anything like that. You know, it can't do anything. We're worshiping something that can't, you put it in its place and it can't do anything. It's less than us. What in the world are we doing? And though, it, and though one cries out to it, it can't answer. Not only can it not move, it can't speak, nor can it save him out of his trouble. And so all gods are not created equal. And no matter how ornate or how much value of, in terms of the materials that are used to create these gods or to create these idols, 
it will never give them enough value in terms of to compare with the worship of the true and the living God. This is the reason when God poses the question, to whom will you liken me and make me equal? We're kind of an idol. If you were to make an idol of me, what idol are you going to use? Or are you going to make that can encapsulate me? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. He's omniscient. He knows everything uh, that there is uh, to know. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And so a God that is like this, how do you encapsulate him or represent him by an idol? You can't. And an attempt to encapsulate him or represent him by an idol is to diminish him. And that's why in the law of Moses, and it carries into the New Testament, the, prohibi the prohibition against making an idol to represent the Lord and the worship of the Lord. Because anytime we do that, we take and we diminish him in, in doing that. And so uh, God says, no idolatry. I don't want to be represented by an idol. Well, people say, you know, if you put an idol and it just, it represents the God that I worship and I put him up on the mantle and it just makes me feel something. It, it reminds me of his presence. It reminds me of this. It produces this emotion in me. God says, I've got that covered. I've got that covered in the person of the Holy Spirit. We don't need an idol to draw us close to God or to make us feel like we're close to God or to make us feel like God loves us or that he's present. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit does in our life. And so we don't need idols and idolatry like other religions need in order to prop up something that is false. We have a God who says, no idol can represent me and I will give my Holy Spirit to do in your lives and more what people are attempting to accomplish in the worship of some physical thing as a representation of their God. Now sometimes and in this section of Isaiah, God is being very, very hard on idolatry and he should be. Um, but sometimes you can listen, and even as I taught on Bell and Nebo a couple of weeks ago, it seems like a year, doesn't it? <laughs> Time. But even as we taught on, on that, um, sometimes somebody can look at it and say, well, you know, God is, is condemning uh, the idols or idolatry, but it seems as if Isaiah doesn't recognize that they didn't consider these images to be their God, but merely representations of their God. And so Isaiah is missing the whole point, but Isaiah isn't missing the whole point. What God is saying in all of this is the only thing that is real about their God is the idols that they're worshiping. What they claim that these idols represent in the spiritual realm for them is non-existent. The only thing that's real about the religion and what they worship is the idol. And so that's why he condemns the idol itself, the only thing that was real about uh, their religious system. And so God condemns that. He speaks about the fact that uh, no, the reason idolatry in Christianity, Judaism before it, is condemned is that he cannot be encapsulated in any way uh, by the creation of some kind of an idol. He said, remember this and show yourself men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, speaking to the children of Israel, 
Remember the former things of old. He said, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not uh, yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I sh will do all of my pleasure. Again and again in this section of Isaiah, and probably in this section of Isaiah more than anywhere else within the Bible, God takes and he says it over and over and over and over again. And sometimes you can think, oh no, is he going to say this one more time? But we'll go to other sections of the Bible where he won't bring it up. But if we leave this section of Isaiah without having this driven home to us, then we've missed one of the most important things about Isaiah. And God is declaring here over and over again that he is unique in all of uh, everything. He is unique as, a, as God. He is the only God. And he, is, he demonstrates his uniqueness by way of prophecy. How it is that he declares things that are going to come to pass long before they do come to pass. And they always come to pass with 100% accuracy. And that is one of the means by which, or one of the evidences that he gives to us as Christians of the fact that he is uniquely God. Uh, you, sometimes you get, is it Nostradamus or whatever, they talk about the prophecies of him, you know, and he makes a hundred prophecies and two of them come true and all the rest of them don't. And he's like one of the great figures of history. They estimate that fully a third of the Bible when it was written was prophetic. It was God speaking about what was going to happen in the future before it happened so that when it did happen, we would recognize that only God can do that with 100% accuracy and recognize that God, the God of the Bible, is unique among all the ones that are worshipped in this world. And fulfilled prophecy is a tremendous testimony to the divine inspiration of the Word of God. And if we leave the book of Isaiah without recognizing that, having that in our hip pocket when we witness to people and people say, why in the world should I believe in the Bible any more than I would believe in any other holy book? And you can speak about the testimony of prophecy and fulfilled prophecy. Its uniqueness is a testimony to the divine authorship of the word of God. And it's important for us to know that because if we're not gonna tell that to people, then who is going to tell that? Uh, to people. And so this amazing characteristic related to God. Now, when I was a, a younger man, uh, they used to have, you know, they'd come to New Year's Eve and every, all of these uh, seers, uh, Gene Dixon was probably the most famous of all of them. And they would make all of these prophecies or predictions related to the new year. And she'd make dozens of them. And uh, so would others. And they would always be careful to, because they would weigh the percentage of, you know, there's going to be a stock market crash. Um, the sun is going to rise each morning. Uh, we'll set, set each, you know, they pad it, just like sometimes the uh, different athletic teams in the preseason, they'll play all these patsies to pad their uh, records so they can make the NCAA tournament at the end. And, and so they would pad it with all of this except for the fact that she'd get about, even she was considered one of the best at this, but she'd get half of them wrong. Under the law of Moses, if she gave uh, 24 prophecies, 
And uh, half of them were wrong, 12 of them were wrong. We'd have to take her out and stone her 12 times. She wouldn't have lived another year to make the prophecy. The point I'm making is it's a marvel. It's a marvel of God that God prophesied and does prophesy in the volume that he does and all of it comes to pass. It is amazing and unique to the Bible in the world today and in the human condition. And then he speaks about the prophecy that he's dealing with most specifically toward them right now, and that is the fact that they would go into the captivity to the Babylonians, but that God would one day deliver them uh, by a man named uh, Cyrus who would come out of a Medo-Persian empire who would defeat the Babylonians and set them free. He refers to uh, Cyrus as a bird of prey from the east. Cyrus would come out of the Medo-Persian empire, establish it actually, that was to the east of uh, Israel. The man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. Go home, go to your computer or your Encyclopedia Britannica, if you're like 100 years old and you still haven't sold it in a garage sale yet when it was still worth something, but go in there and then look at the history of Cyrus coming onto the scene, the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire. Remember, uh, God is prophesying to, this, to the children uh, of Israel at a time when Assyria is the world ruling empire. Babylon, Babylon is not even yet the world ruling empire and he speaks of the fact that it will be an ultimately overthrown by the kingdom of the Medo-Persians and he names the king that will do it. That's unique to the Bible in human history. He said, listen to me, you stubborn hearted. So if somebody just sat up in their chair upon hearing that, good for you. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. And, and he's speaking to uh, the children of Israel. They were stubborn-hearted. They were far from righteousness. But God uh, deals with them and us according to grace. He said, I will bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. And when he refers to his righteousness here, he's referring to his deliverance of them from the Babylonian captivity. God had declared, he will declare through Jeremiah when we get to that book ultimately, that they would go into their Babylonian captivity for a period of 70 years. And having been in captivity for 70 years, now the righteous thing to do was for God to deliver them out of that captivity. So he refers to this act as his righteousness. I will bring my righteousness near. It shall not be afar off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Then in chapter 47, God speaks about the judgment that he's going to bring on uh, Babylon. Again, remember, Babylon is not even a world-ruling empire at this time. It's just a part of the Assyrian uh, uh, empire. He's given this prophecy 150 years before it actually uh, comes to pass. And so... The Lord speaks of the future uh, humbling and humiliation of Babylon for their treatment, uh, mistreatment of the Jews during the Babylonian captivity. He said, come down and sit in the dust. Now, that's a, a humble place 
for a Babylonian to take at that time in history. They were the, they were the people at that time. And God said, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. And so uh, Babylon here is personified as this proud young woman of great wealth and prestige who suddenly loses everything and in a moment becomes a slave girl. And that's exactly what's going to happen to her. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, she'll become a slave. Remove your veil, take off your skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not uh, arbitrate with a man. So God speaks of the enslavement and the shame and the degradation that was awaiting them in their future. As Israel hears of this prophecy, they, there is kind of the declaration of praise from them upon uh, when, they, when this is ultimately fulfilled. As for our Redeemer, the children of Israel will say, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. At that time, they'll be proud that God is their God and not doing monkey business with other idols. Then God goes on and continues to speak to uh, Babylon, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the lady of kingdoms. God said, I was angry with my people. I've profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. And so God put the children of Israel into captivity to the Babylonians in order to chastise them, to punish them. And uh, but he didn't put them into the Babylonian captivity so that the Babylonians then would further abuse them or take advantage of them. And that's exactly what they did, and God noticed it. It was like, all right, I wanted you to defeat them. I wanted you to take them in captivity, but I never, ever called you to treat them the way that you uh, treated them. He said, you showed them no mercy. You showed no uh, you showed no mercy, even on the elderly, the most vulnerable uh, there. You laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. And so she looked at herself and said, I am Babylon, we are Babylon, the great, this great empire will never come to an end. We aren't going to have to answer to anyone. We can treat people however we want, even the uh, people of Jehovah or Yahweh of the Bible. And so they did, but God was taking note of that. It's an important principle and uh, it's brought out in Galatians chapter 6 that the Bible says that if somebody is overtaken in a stumble, a Christian, they're involved in sin or a backslide, the Bible says that we who are <clears throat> meek or we who are, are humble are to then go to that person and confront them with a desire to bring them to repentance and back to God. When God, ever God uses us to confront another Christian uh, concerning their sin, uh, that uh, God can call us to do that. But those are times in which we have to be very, very careful not to overstep 
uh, what God is calling us to do and then begin to uh, you know, berate them or begin to uh, uh, go further than God wants us uh, to go with them. And the children, uh, the Babylonians did exactly that and God noted that. When we're involved, say God uses us as an instrument even of rebuke or chastisement of a Christian and he can do that and it's a very unpleasant activity by the way if a person likes that too much then you shouldn't be doing it um, so it's a it's not a fun thing to do but when God does call us to do it there should be the recognition of doing unto others as we would want them to do to us and that is to treat them in the same way that we would want somebody to treat us in that same condition. And the Babylonians didn't do that. They were harsh and cruel in their treatment of God's people. And therefore, hear this out, you who are given the pleasures, who dwell securely, at least in their minds, who say in their hearts, I am, and there is no one besides me. I tell you, they must be raised in public education in the United States are all the self I am me I me my books I am and there is no one else beside me no one more important than Babylon I shall never sit as a widow my husbands will never be killed in battle they will never know defeat nor shall I know the loss of children Babylon felt absolutely secure militarily in every way this kingdom can never know defeat and God says, but these two things shall come to you, the loss of husband and the loss of children. And it shall happen in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. I'm so tempted to say something right now and I'm trying to figure out whether it would be edifying or not. Therefore evil shall come upon you and you shall know from where it arises and trouble shall fall upon you and you will not be able to pull it off and desolation shall come upon you suddenly which you shall not know. God says the destruction and the disaster would come quickly and we know as we get into the book of Daniel a little bit later um, in the 22nd century when we get to that particular place that ultimately they did, Babylon did fall to the Medo-Persians and it happened in a night under the reign of Belteshazzar and uh, it happened just as God said it would. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you, uh, you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. And so go uh, and uh, consult all of your gods when this uh, season of uh, defeat comes upon you. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators, these were the stars of, of Babylonian culture, the educated people, the people that would speak of the future, that the kings and queens would go to for uh, wisdom. He said, let now the astrologers, the star stargazers, and the 
monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. And so she felt Babylon did confident that her gods would, that uh, if that they would, she would never fall because her gods would number one forewarn her if there was a danger, and number two protect her if there was such a danger. And God is declaring that they will do uh, neither for her. Behold, they shall be a stubble; the fire shall burn them. And so these. Uh, gods that they worshiped, these wise men that they worshiped, they'll be as useless as stubble uh, in a fire. In other words, they won't be able to help themselves, much less help you. As he goes on to say, they shall not deliver themselves, even themselves, from the power of the flame. It shall not be a cold to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. In other words, this coming judgment is going to come as a great fire. Fire is a wonderful thing. Uh, in a fireplace and uh, is not a wonderful thing outside of uh, in a forest uh, or in a judgment and so he's saying listen this fire that's going to come to you isn't going to be something that's cozy and all it's going to be devastating and thus they shall say to you with whom you have labored your merchants from your youth they shall wander each one to his quarter no one shall save you so this is uh, you know forgive me if you're a businessman but uh, commercial Babylon here <laughs> all through the ages. It doesn't speak of all people who are in business because a lot of people who are in business, certainly Christian businessmen and businesswomen, they do what they do as unto the Lord. It is their ministry and they do it well. But commercial Babylon, it's like merchants go where the money is, where the money can be made. And it was like, okay, Babylon's defeated now. Uh, Babylon who? And uh, Medo-Persians, yes! You know, And can I sell you a car now? Or whatever it might be. So uh, the, how fickle people are uh, to, uh, you know, as soon as they can't make money off of you, they're out the side door. And uh, chapter 48, God uh, declares here as he, uh, that concerning his refinement of idolatry, uh, he he chose to uh, refine them because he alone is worthy of their praise and of their worship. He alone worthy of, of being glorified. And when we lose sight of that as God's people, he alone is worthy of our worship and worthy of our attention and our glory and our praise and our adoration. God knows how to put us into a season uh, of fire that will refine out of our lives anything that is competing with God for our full attention and for the fullness of your heart. How many of you know that God can put you in that kind of a season to refine you? I know, and I know many of you know as well. And so this is what it's about. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name uh, of Israel. And Israel means governed by God, and God is saying, listen, you're called Israel, you're called governed or ruled by God, now let me govern you. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness, for they shall call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, 
the Lord of hosts is his name. And so it's, an, it's kind of an interesting uh, passage here, technical a little bit, but what the Lord is rebuking uh, the children of Israel for here is he's anticipating that uh, when he ultimately does deliver them from their Babylonian captivity by the hand not of the Messiah or not by a Jewish savior, but at the hand of a Gentile king by the name of Cyrus, that they will then push back and his, they will look at his means of deliverance and say, that isn't acceptable to us. You using a Gentile in order to free us as Jews. At least you could use a Jew to do that. At least in our history, you used Moses in the past to deliver us from the bondage of Egypt. You should use a Jew. Listen, when God is dealing with the Jewish people, he knows what he's dealing with. So it's like, be thankful I'm delivering you from the Babylonian captivity with anyone. Be happy if I sent Lassie to lead you out of the Babylonian empire. But he knows these people are just going to give him flack no matter what he does for them. And he's telling them, listen, let me do what I do the way that I know it is best and quit fighting with me with it. And he anticipates their opposition. I'll tell you, well, they talk about herding cats, right? Being like a, a difficult thing to do. It isn't difficult. You've got like a 22 pistol. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I repent of that. I was so good earlier, wasn't I? And then here I failed. If any man sins not with his mouth, he's a perfect man, the Bible says. So here I am. I am, I am imperfect, uh, evidenced again. Now I've completely lost my train of thought here. But I mean, keeping people in line. Just think about, what, think about the effort that God goes through just to keep this few hundred people right here in this room, keeping us in line and keeping track of us, let alone the hundreds of millions of people that know him all around the world, maybe even billions. We don't know. The Lord knows. And so God declares, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. And suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew. So if you thought I was being tough on the Jews, God knows. And it's not just the Jews, we're in the same category too. Because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. That's poetic language for saying, I knew you were stiff-necked and hard-headed. And so... Uh, God said, I told you what would happen before it happened uh, so that you would accept it when it did happen because I know you don't listen to anybody and you, you certainly resist anything that doesn't occur your way. Is it even from the beginning I've declared it to you? Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say my idol has done them and my carved image and my molded image have uh, commanded them. And so God told them ahead of time what would happen so that they wouldn't then attribute this deliverance from Babylon uh, to their false gods when it did happen. God said, I know you will do that. I know you will do that. And so I will tell you ahead of time so that when it happens, you will recognize that it wasn't them and that it was me. Have you heard See all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time. He says, I'm telling you stuff that you've never heard before. 
even through Moses, about the fact that you're going to go into a Babylonian captivity, that you will be delivered from that captivity. You'll be delivered by a man by the name of Cyrus. You will be brought back into uh, the land of Israel. These were all new revelations given again 150 plus years before they occurred. And God said, even hidden things that you did not uh, and you did not know them, they are created now and not from uh, the beginning, and before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. You never knew any of these things until I told you. It was inconceivable that you would go into captivity, and then when you were in captivity, it would be inconceivable that within 70 years you'd be delivered from the greatness of Babylon. No, you never thought this up. Surely you did not hear, and surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. God said, I had to tell you about these things ahead of time so that I would get the glory because if I didn't tell you these things ahead of time, you would give the credit to the false gods that you worship in your life and give your glory. The, my glory, the glory that he deserved, verse 11, to those idols. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first and also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call them to them, they stand up together. I don't know the last time you've ordered a star around. Probably never, me either. But God has created all of these things. In other words, when God says, these are the promises that I make, these things are going to happen, the one who is making these promises is the one who's created the heavens and the earth. In other words, I don't just say things. I have the power to keep my promises. And so he made the promises, and then he kept the promises. And as Christians, every time we read one of God's promises in his word and we claim that promise... I hope you make a practice of claiming God's promises for your life on a daily and weekly basis. We claim that promise. We claim that promise and God is going to be, the God that is going to be true to that promise is the God who has created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the fulfillment of that promise is absolutely sure. There's the old saying is that if a person can believe the first verse in the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. If I can believe that to be true, then everything else is a cinch to believe because every other promise is something that is readily delivered upon by God in comparison to his ability to do that great miracle of bringing all of this into existence. Surely he can take care of what is then occurs to us within the existence if he's created uh, all of these things. All of you assemble yourself. You among, uh, who among them has declared these things? Uh, the, Lord, uh, the Lord loves him and he shall do his pleasure upon Babylon. Again, God uh, promised to bring down the Babylonians. He's speaking here uh, of his promise of Cyrus. The Lord loves Cyrus for what he's going to do in the delivering of the Jews. He shall do God's pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. 
I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this. I've not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that I was, uh, from, from the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God, his spirit, has sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit and who leads you by the way that you should go. Do you realize that every commandment in the Word of God is for our profit? Everything that he tells us to do is for our profit. It is profitable for us. Everything that he prohibits us from doing is for our profit. It is for our good. And that's the heart of God behind all of his commandments. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way that you should go. And then here is the means by which he does that. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, the word of God for our prophets. And you look at that verse uh, eight, that oh from God. God's heart was broken over the fact that the children of Israel became what they became, went into bondage the way that they went into bondage uh, simply because they refused to obey his word. His word is life-giving, it is protecting, it is enriching, it is a blessing, it is a privilege to know it and to obey it. And so God looks, here they are in, in looking down through history to when they would be in that Babylonian captivity. He says, oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea, strong, powerful. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. You would have not ended up almost destroyed by the Babylonians in captivity to them. And God said, my commandments were to you to bring peace into your life, to bring righteousness into your life, rightness, goodness, blessing into your life. In the Old Testament, it's true then, but it's also true today to have descendants, to have a large family was a blessing. It was a sign to them of God's, God's blessing. It's the way that they viewed that. God said, I wanted to make your descendants as, as the sand of the sea, and instead you go as this remnant into the Babylonian captivity, all because you wouldn't heed my commandments. And then in verse 20, God, as he looks down through history to the day that uh, the Babylonian Empire would be overthrown by Cyrus and then the children of Israel would be given the opportunity to return to the land. He exhorts them, go forth from Babylon, get out of there, flee from the Chaldeans and do it with the voice of singing praising God for being able to leave this place, this place of bondage and, and the product of our backsliding and to return to the fullness of God's promises. Do it with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this, 
utter it to the end of the earth as you're making your way back to Canaan, back to the promised land from Babylon. Let the whole world know that no idol did this, but your God did this. He's delivered you out of darkness and brought you into his glorious light. And say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst, God said, when he led them through the deserts. Again, God looks down through history. He looks at the remnant that will leave Babylon and will obey his command to return to the land. And he realizes even before it occurs that he is going to take care uh, of them. He speaks of it in the past tense, the Lord. Uh, and they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts to return to Canaan. And he caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. And then the Lord declared, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And uh, unfortunately, in the history of the Jews, when the day did come for them to return back to the land, only a very comparatively small remnant left Babylon to obey God's calling upon their lives individually, but as a nation to return to Israel. Because by this time, uh, Babylon, uh, the Medes and the Persians, when they came into Babylon, they didn't burn the city down to the ground. It was a very, um, uh, almost uh, relatively, in terms of you know, the annals of warfare, relatively uh, bloodless overthrow. And uh, so it wasn't like, okay, Babylon is completely destroyed, and so this is one wreck, and we might as well leave this wreck for another wreck and head to the promised land and build it up. At least it's the promised land. No, Babylon was comfortable, and they had established a comfortable existence there, materially and financially. And when it came time to obey God's commandment to leave Babylon and flee the Chaldeans and go run full force. Don't get addicted to comfort. Don't get sucked into comfort. Don't make your decisions concerning your life based upon comfort, God is saying to them. Run to the promised land. I still have a, a purpose for you as a people to bring the Messiah into the world, the Savior of the world. So much is at stake based upon your obedience to this, and yet the overwhelming majority of Jews never left Babylon to return to the land of Israel. But a small remnant did, and the group that did not heed his commandments. He spoke about the fact that it was your failure to heed my commandments that then took you into the Babylonian captivity. And now he brings up this fleeing, going forth from Babylon, fleeing from the Chaldeans. He's bringing that up right on the heels of that by saying, now don't disobey me here. It ended badly before. Now listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. No matter how difficult my will looks like for you to make your way from Babylon, the comparative comfort of it, to take that long, hard journey to the promised land once again, to Israel, and then to rebuild it. It is my will, and it is the best thing for you to do. And yet, a relatively few would, would heed him and obey that, and we'll talk about that when we get into the book of Nehemiah and, and Ezra and all some way, way out there, date once again, uh, getting into that as it's recorded there. It's really important. Um, this whole thing of um, comfort, 
danger that it is to God's call upon our lives as Christians as a whole, the whole body of Christ, and the danger that can represent to our individual lives and God's individual call upon our lives. There's nothing wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with enjoying comfort. In fact, as you get older, uh, you'll come to appreciate it uh, much more. But when God calls us to do something and now we're unwilling to do that because of some physical comfort, the comfort of our friendships, even the comfort of our church to then go to the other side of the world as some do out of this fellowship or wherever it might be, whatever God has called us to locally or on the other side of the world, to refuse to do that is always a great, great mistake. The action is always right in the middle of God's will, whether that's comfortable or whether that's uncomfortable. And God's people, as you see, have a long history of making their decisions on the basis of comfort. And Jesus said, you know, the foxes have holes to, and, and all and laying the head and all of these different things. He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And speaking to the disciples about not putting comfort over the will of God for our lives. And Jesus is our example in that. Let's stop here tonight. God calls that wickedness, by the way, a failure to obey his calling upon our individual lives when he has gone, paid such a price to not only save us, but to provide us with a plan and a purpose for our lives, a will for our lives that he calls good and acceptable and perfect. Hopefully none of us have taken that and tied it up and put it in a napkin and buried it somewhere, but that we are operating within God's call and plans for our lives. And if we don't know what his call and his purpose is for our lives, that we are seeking him related to that. So we'll stop there tonight, but before we dismiss, I'd like the worship team to come up and